All right. Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. And uh, we will begin here in just a moment where we left off in 1 Kings chapter 8, but first an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we have seen the construction of the temple, and now we see the ark being brought into the temple. That is where we ended last week, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Now we're going to go into Solomon blessing the Lord, the, his prayer of dedication, his benediction, his sacrifices. In other words, um, we, might, we might say the divine service of the temple enacted for the first time here. Um, not to suggest that this is the normal liturgy or order of events, but it is at its inauguration. So, chapter 8, verse 12, Then Solomon said, well, let's remind ourselves, the cloud of the Lord has filled the house of the Lord. That's the climactic moment. And this is, this is in a very real sense, a picture, an image of the Incarnation. Here the, the cloud of glory en envelops and fills the physical house of the Lord. And very much like Christ Jesus, the Word made flesh tabernacling among us, um, His body being the temple, and, the, and in Him the fullness of the deity, deity dwells. Verse 12, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that He would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. This is a wonderful verse, a very contemplative verse. I suppose most broadly, maybe most interestingly, at least there's enough, the most space here, while God himself is pure light and in him there is no darkness at all, Yet he decides to dwell in darkness. <coughs> Isn't that a fascinating thing? There is so much mileage one can get contemplatively in terms of considering this reality, how it is that the God who is light clothes or hides himself in darkness. And it's only in darkness and in the pursuit of darkness that we can find light. What do I mean by darkness? Certainly not the pursuit of sin or the pursuit of the devil or the demonic forces, but those things which, because of our fallen nature, strike us as dark, strike us as cloudy or unclear or maybe even evil and offensive, you know, like all of Christianity. <laughs> you know, the fallen man receiveth not the things of God. So God is dark to the fallen man, isn't he? He's, he's enshrouded in darkness, and yet we know he is the light. Well. That's just a rough introduction into this, I think, this marvelous imagery. Now, more concretely, do you remember the construction of the temple? And it may well help you to, to flip back just a couple pages if you're in the Lutheran Study Bible. 
um, to page 541 in the diagram of the temple. The temple itself, if there was no internal lighting, would be quite dark. And in the holy place, you have, you have these, uh, the lamps. But in the holiest of holies, pitch black, pitch black. So very concretely, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So, very concretely, he dwells in darkness. If, uh, if the doors, the veil to the holiest of holies is shut, it's quite dark in there. And I'm unaware of any provisions for lampstands within the, within the holiest of holies. Um, worthwhile to point out that, as Solomon says, that you'll dwell there forever and or forever. It's... Um, here you can, see, you, you can see the sense of forever is indefinitely, until further notice. I mean, Solomon isn't binding the Lord. And there are, I simply point this out because there are many, many instances of this in the Old Testament where such and such a, a, um, a feast or celebration is established forever, or a practice, a given practice is established forever, or the dwelling place of the Lord is in, in the temple is established forever. It simply means indefinitely. So as you're reading the Old Testament scriptures and you see that language of forever, you need not be troubled by it. There are many instances where forever simply means indefinitely. Obviously, this temple is destroyed in 586 or 587 B.C. Ezekiel famously prophesies of God leaving the temple because the people have violated the covenant. And that harkens back to earlier in 1 Kings where God says this very thing, I'll dwell with the people in this temple so long as they abide by my covenant. It, again, it doesn't mean perfection because the whole sacrificial system is there and instituted, but it means that they live according to my ways where they fall short confessing their sins, receiving my absolution, the blood atonement that shows forth the blood atonement, the ultimate once and for all blood atonement of Christ that is to come and blot out the sins of the whole world, Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, so that's living within his covenant. Living outside of his covenant is egregious, uh, you know, ki kinds, of kinds of breaches like uh, idolatry, worshiping false gods, and engaging in those practices, uh, the, the sexual immorality that accompanies that, the theft and murder and injustice that accompanies that. Okay, so, um, so already in the text we know this, this is limited, even though it says forever. God doesn't correct Solomon, so we take forever simply to mean indefinitely. Verse 14, Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. 
Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. All right. Straightforward. A reminder of the redemptive act of the Old Testament, which is saving the people, saving Israel from Pharaoh, making they who were not a people into a people. And if you recall the, the purpose of, for which Moses was sent, and he even spoke and decreed this to Pharaoh, the purpose for the people to be released into the desert is that they may serve the Lord. And that language of serve, if you you look at the etymology and usage it's very similar to our language of liturgy so it was so that they may come out and participate in the divine service the liturgy and so then God establishes in a sense a fullness of that dwelling among his people not now in a tabernacle that's moving but in a temple that's established What else might we say on the concrete level? Israel, the promise fulfilled to David. I think that's, that's probably right. Now on a deeper level, on a Christological level and on a kind of typological level, um, there's so much here. This is jam-packed. We could probably spend the rest of the hour here. I'll, I'll try not to. <laughs> try to move quickly. Okay. We've talked about, we've talked about Solomon as... Uh, a type of Christ because he is really the son of David. The son of David. And Jesus is the son of David. And it's very interesting because in, in all the ways that David is a type of Christ, you know, the shepherd king and um, the one who defeats Goliath, has a heart after God and all, all these ways. Here in this typology, David shifts more to the role of the father. And um, that's a very minor point, but it's Solomon who now takes on the role of the son, the son of David, the son of God. So here, um, so, so here he is blessing the people. And you can look at verse 16. Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Now there's the, there's the language of the name. So look at how, look at how these two things are connected. The coming out of Egypt, which, of course, we know through the Red Sea. And this idea connected of a place where God puts his name. This is precisely why in the waters of holy baptism, we've got these two things. We've got water and God's name. And the place where he puts his name, look where it is in this text. In this text, it's that he places his name on the physical temple. That is the place where he can be accessed, where he can be identified, where if you want to go see Yahweh, 
Yahweh is there. But in the New Testament, where does he place his name? On us. We are his temple because we belong to Christ and are members of his body. And Christ says that his body is, his, is the temple. Destroyed in three days, I will raise it again. He was referring to his body. This has a sacramental connection. As we eat of his body, we become one body with him. And so, Jesus becomes the name bearer of God. That's why baptism is done in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts. It's this theology that's behind that. Okay. And the idea that God puts his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon us shows that his, that his dwelling place is no longer in a, in a temple in Israel or anywhere else. His dwelling place is in his people. We are the living stones being built up into his holy house. And this climax is in Revelation where the dwelling place of God is no longer in heaven with the angels, which is, you know, even the Lord's Prayer teaches us to think this way, our Father who art in heaven. But the dwelling place of God is with man and there is no temple for God dwells with his people and the Lamb is the temple. All right. So very, very loaded section if we think about where this is pointing. And of course we should. Christ speaks of the Old Testament scriptures and says, it is they that testify of me. So we're not wrong at all to look at this text more deeply and see how and in what ways it shows forth the coming of Christ and the New Testament gifts and sacraments, his abiding presence with us. All right, verse 17 would be fine to pick up with. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, well, listen, here too you can see the radical nature of the New Testament that we often miss because we're all Gentiles and we take it for granted. But think of, think of the temple. The whole thing is that this is the God of Israel, the God of Israel, and he builds his temple in Israel for Israel. This is, what, this is what's so shocking about... And this is even before Paul gets it, or some of the other apostles get it, as recorded in Acts, where Jesus says to the eleven on the mountain after his resurrection, make disciples of all nations. Okay, not, no longer just Israel, but, uh, and those, those few here and there that trickle into Israel, you know. There certainly were Gentiles that trickled into Israel. But go and make disciples of all nations. How and in what way? Well, we just quoted it. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded. Baptizing water and the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So all nations are to become my dwelling place. All believers, the people of all nations. So this is really incredible because prior to that, it was his name is for Israel. Now his name is for all nations. And Paul marvels at this and says, this is the mystery hidden before the foundation of the world. And he speaks about this in several of his epistles. Ephesians and Colossians both come to mind. Romans also, there's a reference at least. So yeah, this, this idea that the dwelling place of God is with all nations, that's stunning and mind-blowing to the Hebrew mind, um, even up to the first century. They wrestle with that, they grapple with that, and then they accept it and glorify God.
okay, um, maybe sufficient to just pick up at verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel. Here you can see again the son of David motif. To sit on the throne of Israel here quite obviously means a glorious earthly throne. But think, think of this in juxtaposition with Jesus, the son of David, and him being enthroned on the cross. And how do we know he's enthroned on the cross? How, why would we ever read it that way? Because of what's tacked over his head. King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You know, Latinized and then anglicized, inri, right? Um, when you see that above the cross, we have that above our, our crucifix in there, inri. And uh, that's, that's uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So we know he's enthroned there. So it's very fascinating. And again, you could sit back and really think on this and mine out some very rich gems by just comparing the difference between this, this moment of the temple and this moment of the glory of the Lord filling the temple and Solomon as the son of David enthroned over the people. And then you think of Jesus, the son of David, enthroned over the people, king of... And then, and then expanding that out beyond Israel to the whole world all nations. And he becomes the king not only of the Jews, but of all nations, baptizing them and writing God's name upon them so that they become part of his temple. And this is at least in the same ballpark But this is, in all likelihood, one of the fundamental concepts that the evangelist St. John is using in his gospel when he talks particularly about the death of Jesus on the cross being the glorification. Now, he's quoting Jesus, of course, but he's emphasizing. So remember when Jesus prays, for example, now the time has come, glorify your son. Um, so, so the glory of the Lord that fills the temple here is on the cross when Jesus is glorified by the Father. That is the fullness of God being revealed and entempled in Jesus, tabernacled and entempled in Jesus. And it is the, you know, the veil rips as he dies. And it's not so much like, well, now we have access to God. Okay, fine. I mean, but that's sort of like so superficial as to really miss the point. It's like now the holiest of holies is in him, in his flesh and blood. And so John, again, the evangelist in his epistles, picks up this very theme and talks about how the water, the blood, and the spirit testify. Remember, John alone records that when Jesus' side is pierced, what comes out is 
water and blood. And when he, when he gives up the spirit, he doesn't like kick the bucket or give up the ghost. He paradosises. He hands over. He, he traditions the spirit. So what's coming out of Jesus, in John's way of looking at the cross, what's coming out of Jesus is water, blood, and the spirit. And it's all saying like, this is the glory of God and temple. This is Christ crucified is the new temple. Now you can understand why the author of Hebrews is like, we, we access him through the veil of his flesh. I mean, in one sense, that just takes on an incarnational value where it's through, the, it's through the human being, Jesus, we access the fullness of the divinity. But even deeper than that, as we partake of the flesh, we enter the flesh of Christ in the sacrament. We enter through the veil into the holiest of holies. We become one with the one who is God in human flesh. We become one with, with the glorified one who is glorified specifically on the cross and, and the glory the glory is hidden and yet revealed in that paradoxical, stereotypically Lutheran way of thinking, hidden and revealed in the cross of Jesus. So, yeah, this is, um, again, this is very rich, and I've probably spent enough time on it, but if you think typologically about this section, there's many more things you can mine out of here, no doubt about it. Um, Maybe just one quick glance at 21, and then we'll move on. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. John the Evangelist and also St. Paul in Romans refers to Christ as the hilasterion, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. It's very interesting to consider how the Ark of the Covenant typifies Jesus because as Jesus comes, you know, think of the Ark and what's in the Ark. It's the, it's the, co- it's the covenant, yeah, which, is, which has at its, at its essence the Ten Commandments, and when Jesus is asked, you know, what, what the greatest commandment is, what does he say? Love the Lord your God, etc., etc., and love your neighbor as yourself. The two tables of the law. Now, of course, that we can't fulfill that law ourselves. Neither could they in the Old Testament. And so the blood of the Lamb was put upon the mercy seat of the ark. That is the top covering of the ark that contains those commandments that condemn us, and thus the blood atonement. I mean, all of this points to Jesus, of course. But now, in what way can we see the ark itself as, as, that, as a type of Christ? Well, in Christ is the law of God written in his heart. Perfect love for God, perfect love for neighbor. And both of these are seen in absolute climax. You can see him throughout Jesus' life and ministry. But absolute climax of all climaxes, you could not get more than this, is the cross, where God is forsaking him, rejecting him, punishing him. And what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God. Utter, perfect love for God, even when God has turned away from him like he's never turned away from any other being ever. And then, and then what is he doing for man in the very same act? Man who is there crucifying him. I mean, in the same way that 
that you and I were there with Adam and Eve. <laughs> we were there with the soldiers. As humanity is unjustly condemning him, mocking him, spitting on him, ridiculing him, theologically taunting him, and crucifying him, naked and shameful and um, marred beyond human semblance. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he refuses to come down from the cross. Perfect love for God, perfect love for man. The embodiment of the law, the embodiment of the old covenant in his very being. In his very being. And then this is why I think St. Paul and St. John the Evangelist call him the mercy seat. Because in him is the law embodied and covering him, just as it covered the mercy seat when he poured the blood of the, the lamb on Yom Kippur, covering him is the blood of the lamb of God. And so he is the hilasterion. He is the once and for all atonement. So much more could be said, but I'll restrain myself there. So when we see the Ark of the Covenant, um, we can see here too a type of Jesus and a type of the cross and the new temple and the new Ark that is to be found. I mean, honestly, if they, uh, if they ever find the, the, you know, the Ark, the ancient Ark, the physical Ark, um, you know, if if Indiana Jones is able to recover it from the <laughs> Nazi warehouse. Uh, or I, Dr. Park was telling us it may be over in India now. Um, I, I mean, I'm highly skeptical of all these things until they manifest. But, um, you know, even if it did, what would it be other than it wouldn't be the Ark. The, the true Ark is Christ. You know what I mean? It's, it's of historical interest and significance. Kind of the same way the, uh, the broken down temple in Jerusalem is. I mean, who wouldn't love to go there just to be there and see it? And it's of, it's of historical interest and tangential meaning to Christianity. But, yeah, but what a mistake it would be to think that you're going to some super holy place when you go to the temple in Israel and, and think of it in some way as if that were higher than what you're doing every Sunday morning when you go to communion, where you are injuring the true temple, the temple of the flesh and blood of Christ and the atonement. So, again, just to round out that imagery of Hebrews, which he doesn't. I think he leaves that for preachers. Um, but as you enter through the veil first and receive the by now you're in the holiest of holies. You're before the Ark of the Covenant. And what do you see and receive there? There's blood poured out on the Ark of the Covenant. You partake of that blood and you become one with Christ in the holiest of holies. Such a, just such a beautiful, wonderful way of thinking about the Lord's Supper. So, yeah, I would love to go see the, uh, the, the temple, but I'm not going to get all starstruck about it or take off my shoes for I'm walking on holy ground. I mean, this is the, this is the same reason why, um, what is that thing called, the Seder meal? Like, we really have no business doing a Seder. We can study it. But sometimes with Christians, there's this sense of like, oh, this is really holy and special. It was entirely, I mean, not only is it historically inaccurate probably, but it was, it's entirely replaced by the Lord's Supper, which is the ultimate and greater thing. So any amount of titillation we might have over these Old Testament things, we ought to immediately check and say, but the greater has come. The greater has come, and we participate in that. Okay, I saw a, I saw a hand. Jews would do if they found the ark? I mean, would they build a temple? Or? 
Yeah, so the question is, what, what do you think the Jews would do today if they found the ark? Um, knowing the Jews today, probably nothing. I mean, there's just no interest in, uh, there, there's precious little interest in reviving the sacrificial uh, system of the Hebrew faith, and it's really moved on. I don't know enough about Judaism to comment on, it, it strikes me very superficially at an armchair amateur level that in, in a certain sense, even amongst those Jews that were identifying as religious as opposed to just cultural, um, it appears to me that the Pharisees won, that it's just become a religion of morality and uh, a religion of, you know, try to do good kind of thing. Uh, very sad. Some of them are still waiting for the Messiah, which I, you know, I sympathize with on the one hand because it's the right impulse. They're reading the scriptures right. But the fact that you can't find Jesus is, uh, is yeah, it's inexcusable, inexcusable. Okay, on to, uh, on to 22, Solomon's prayer of dedication. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. Now, why doesn't God strike him down with lightning right here? Because 20th and 21st century Lutheranism has failed to grasp this concept that God doesn't demand perfection. Um, in an absolute sense, he demands perfection. I mean, that's the law. If you're guilty of it in one place, you're guilty of it uh, you know, in, in all places. And if you're guilty of the law, the wages of sin is death. And death made eternal is eternal death. Okay, got it. But that's the only paradigm we've been operating with. There's a second biblical paradigm and a second biblical category that we must recover. Otherwise, the, these Old Testament texts condemn us or we condemn them, which is not a good position to be in. So look at this. There is a sense in which you can be one who walks before the Lord with all their heart. Lord, thee I love with all my heart. The, the hymn is. And we're not trying to confess that we're somehow over the sinful nature, or the sinful nature is somehow departed from us. That's not what we're saying at all. But we are, in fact, acknowledging that it's there, waging war against it. When it wins, we confess and thus put it to death in the blood and mercy and forgiveness of Christ. And that's what it means to walk with the Lord in, with all your heart. To walk before the Lord with all your heart. That's what it means. I mean, I think, if I, I think if I preach to a room of Lutheran pastors and I said, uh, you, you are all walking before the Lord with all your heart, they, they probably pelt me with hymnals. <laughs> and, and yet isn't that precisely what, uh, what Solomon is saying here? Well, I mean, 
look, walking before the Lord with all our heart does not mean sinlessly. It means repent in repentance. Okay, so... Um, Yeah, once, just once more from the top. Um, o Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Keeping covenant. This is beautiful because this is God keeping his marriage vow. This is God um, keeping his covenant and keeping his side of the bargain. And fr frankly, the whole story of the Old Testament is how God keeps his side of the bargain and his side of the covenant, even when Israel doesn't countless, countless, countless times. And then finally he says, okay, that's enough. And he departs the temple. But yeah, this, this language of keeping, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. And that's a technical term. It shows up all over the Psalms, also the Old Testament in general. But this is a technical term where God is keeping his oath, keeping his promise. And I think this, you know, I'm sure you can quibble about, some expert in words could quibble about, but steadfast love based on the reflection of of Christ as love embodied, love Im for God and love for man embodied. Um, I love, I, I, if we have that in mind and you think of God's steadfast love as, as loving Israel, loving his people, even unto death, even unto death on a cross, then, then we've, we're grasping what this concept of, of keeping covenant, showing steadfast love, what that means. To your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. And this is really a, just a master class in faith. Because faith is receiving the promise of God and believing it before it happens. And then when it happens, saying you were faithful and you kept your promise. God promises all kinds of things that we cannot yet see with our eyes that are not yet fulfilled. And so we cling to his word in faith and we look behind us and we say, he kept all his promises of old. And think about the, the lengths to which he went to keep those promises. Walls of water on either side so that you can walk through. Miracle after miracle innumerable forces outnumbering your forces and somehow you win. God keeps his promises over and over again. And then, I mean, what could be, what could be? Think about, think about putting yourself in the mindset of a Hebrew who believes that God is coming in human flesh. I mean, like just superficially, that strikes you as like, how could that ever happen? How could that ever happen? But it happened. God keeps his promises. And I, I think about that too when I think, whenever I hit that line in the creed um, about the, the resurrection, the resurrection of our bodies, there's going to come a time where there's nobody dead. <laughs> where we're all going to be standing alive forever. Like literally, physically, we're going to see it with our eyes. And right now, I have to, I have to confess my weakness. I think in the same way that if I were a Hebrew thinking about, G, uh, about God Almighty coming in human flesh, I would think, okay, I believe it, but that, I just can't even fathom that. That's about how I feel about the resurrection of all flesh and the new heavens and the new earth. It's like, I believe it because God has promised it, because God has demonstrated himself true and true and true and true, but it is going to be mind-blowing when it happens. It's going to be incredible. 
It's hard to even fathom. But we believe. And so this is, that's why I say this is a master class on faith. We believe even, and God very often will do this to us too. He will make a promise, and then he will. And so we believe, and then Luther goes, and then he will attack our faith. He will shroud it. He shows himself to be light to us, and then he shrouds himself in darkness. I think one of Luther's examples, I could be mistaken on this, is even with, even with Moses and Pharaoh, right? God says, to, God says to Moses, hey, go and set my people free. And Moses is already timid, but hey, tell him, I am, I am sent you. And so I, he's got to be, and you know, Aaron's there, and he's the spokesman, and everything's going to be great. And what does he meet? Opposition. And then there's a plague, okay, but, but then it happens again, opposition. And so you can see God, God, in a sense, from this angle, attacking the faith and promise of Moses so that he has to cling to him through all these plagues and all these things up until he finally brings it to fulfillment. And so it is with us. God allows our faith to be attacked. He makes a promise. Sometimes it's clear as day. Sometimes Christianity and the Christian faith is super easy. Believing in God is like, what else would I believe? And then the attacks come and the assaults come. Now, why does, why does God allow this and why does God do this? For the strengthening of our faith. You know, the, the same way you might, uh, you might do in a kind of inoculation or vaccination or something. And you, what are you doing? You're, you're attacking the body so that the body can build up a defense and overcome it. And so that is really what God is doing in so many ways with us. Is he is allowing our faith to be attacked so that we can overcome it. Sometimes, sometimes it's like the overcoming of it is even after, the, after you lose. <laughs> and you kind of think back and you go, I was pretty darn faithless and I failed the test here, here, and here, but I see it now. And God is gracious and merciful and he forgives me and he's used this to strengthen me and here I am going forward knowing that at bare minimum, I won't fall for that again. <laughs> God willing. <laughs> Job, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. Oh, yes. Yes. Anytime we think we have it hard or rough, we go to Job. And, and what, uh, what darkness and abusiveness. And there you can see Job as a type of Christ because the only one to suffer that worse, that spiritual affliction, that tentatio worse, is Jesus on the cross. Yeah, when God forsakes him. And J Jesus clings to God, and so does Job. Yeah. Job's such a great character, too, because he's like, I, you know, I, I may have spoken my foolishness or in my rashness. I mean, as he's, as he's like, he, but he's clinging to God. He's clinging to God, and he's, he's unwilling to lie. He's unwilling to blame God. Um, but he's unwilling to let God off the hook. That's part of the... And he opposes all his friends that give all the typical good, good theological answers, and they're all bad in the end. God says, pray for your friends so I can forgive them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his wife was not exactly a helpmate there, was she? <laughs> Curse God and die. God, thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole, the whole Old Testament scriptures of God's people indwelling the promise. I mean, as we've seen, because we've gone all the way through Joshua up to the present, as we've seen, 
they by no means obey God even from the start. You know. And that's, I mean, and that's true too. Although, although that's collectively speaking of Israel, I don't, I don't want to take away, and this will draw us back to our text, I don't want to take away fr from the veracity of Solomon's words and the fact that God doesn't rebuke him and the fact that the Holy Spirit saw fit to record these words in Holy Scripture for us and for our learning. Um, and that is, there's always a remnant within Israel. And it's not to say that that remnant's perfect, but there always is a re remnant within Israel that's walking in covenant with the Lord in the Old Testament. And, and there's always a remnant within the church today that's walking in covenant with the Lord. The new covenant, the covenant of the, the body and blood of Christ shed for our forgiveness, but we are trying to walk in newness of life. We're confessing our sins where we fall short of that. We're being uh, cleansed and forgiven by the blood of Christ, touching our lips, cleansing body and soul. Um, that is walking before the Lord with your whole heart. That is walking in covenant with the Lord. That is walking as David walked. As the remnant and as the church, the remnant within the church today continues. Okay, so then uh, verse, verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, uh, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. So you kept your promise. We see it immediately fulfilled. Keep the other part of your promise, which is to always have um, an offspring of David upon the throne. But there is this condition too. Because God has said, if only your sons pay close attention to their way. Do they? Yeah, well, you don't have to do more than flip a few pages to see what happens. In fact, I hope you like this part of Kings. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's really, really hopeful and light and fun uh, relative to what's to come. Uh, because the kings, the kings do not, including even sadly Solomon himself by and large, um, the kings do not do this very thing. They do not pay close attention to their way or walk before the Lord as David has walked before him. So verse 26, Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And so far, just a beautiful, wonderful prayer. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Oh, if I could pen a question. If I could just like drive this into iron and stone. The, it's Revelation that's taught me this and taught me to dig back into these texts because St. Saint, Saint John who writes Revelation is a master of the Old Testament. I think you could make a pretty good argument that there's no greater master of the Old Testament than John the Evangelist. And one of the things that the, the climax of Revelation is the dwelling place of God is with man. And this question goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and is thoroughly, thoroughly part of the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament, the tabernacling of Jesus in the flesh, the Word become flesh and tabernacled among us, the body of Christ as the temple and the sacramental reality, and the climax of all things where the dwelling place of God is not in heaven with the angels, but with man. So this, this question, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
If it isn't the most profound, it's among the most profound questions of our entire existence. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. You can hear the psalmist, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? I suppose it would be both cool and very intimidating to be Solomon and to be praying and singing the songs your dad wrote. <laughs> but I mean, think of all the Psalms of David we have. And then think of Solomon. I guess Solomon was the wisest man aside from Jesus, so he has that going for him. He probably didn't feel inferior. Yeah, what is man that you are mindful of? The, highest he the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this earth, how much less this house that I have built, and, and how much less me, yet you have regarded, or you have regard to the prayer of your servant. You hear my prayer. I mean, isn't that an incredible thing that God hears our prayer? And sometimes he answers those prayers in astonishing ways. The second he answers them, you know what we say? Well, that was coincidence. Or we say, well, of course it had to work that way. I mean, <laughs> oh. God sometimes answers our prayers in astonishing and stunning ways, which, um, again, you're, we, have, we have, in a sense, in a sense, probably more data about the universe than Solomon had. I think that's a fair assumption. You know, we can, what we can see with our telescopes, that kind of thing, and the vastness of the universe, that kind of thing. And you stop and ponder, you know, that God made all of that. You, know, and you just, you zoom all the way in on the earth, and the earth is so small and insignificant. And then you've got these little billions of these little clay creatures running around on earth and that's us and there's literally billions and here I am saying oh Lord please have mercy on me in this moment and tell me the right thing to say and you know it's just incredible it's just incredible he daily and richly answers our prayers and where he doesn't even that is for our good because we learn to know that he is our father and he knows what's best even when we think otherwise. Even when we're kicking and screaming. <laughs> like my children who don't want to go to bed. Still your parents know what's best and God knows what's best. And what, what, wonder, what wonder there is in that where we can, after a prayer hasn't been answered or hasn't been answered in the way we wanted it to be answered, we can step back and say, but he is our father and he knows best. Yeah, yet you have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. This is all verse 28. Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be, upon, may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. I mean, as God's eye here then is, dwells upon the temple, 
I think it's, again, a, a beautiful reflection to think of the Old Testament times where God manifests himself um, with his eyes on Jesus. Think of his baptism, Jesus' baptism as he comes up out of the water. Not only does the Holy Spirit descend, but then God says, this, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. His eyes are on Jesus. And so too, um, at the transfiguration, you know, again, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. His eyes are on Jesus. So can we say then, since he's talking about his eyes open towards the temple, mm -hmm. because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, exactly. God is, God's eyes is set on us. Oh, so well said. So well said. That's where I was hoping to go next. Right, yeah. As we're incorporated into Christ, as we become that temple, God sets his eyes upon us. Absolutely. Absolutely. For the Christian, suffering is utterly transformed. And the question of why is there suffering, why do we suffer, it, while it may not be emotionally, and I'm certainly not saying that like, this is like the thing that dispels all the pain of suffering, or, you know, but, but what we can see as Christians is that suffering itself is utterly transformed to the, to the point of like, you know, why is there suffering? Why could a good God allow this to happen to me? Precisely because he's good. Precisely because suffering is exactly the way that the potter is molding the clay. Is precisely in the way that he is shaping us and conforming us into the image of his son. This is, where we can, this is one of the reasons why we can count it all joy. When we fall, fall into various trials. Persecutions, temptations, tentatio. Because we can start, we can begin to recognize, boy, this is terrible. This is a horrible thing to go through. And we can start to say, but this is precisely what I need. I may not feel that way. Certainly may rebel against it. Certainly may cry out against God and against this happening. And yet the final resolution comes when we realize that he is using even this for the good of those who love him. And he is using even this to shape and conform me into the image of his son, into one who can suffer anything even at the hands of God, and love him and say, my God, my God. One who can suffer anything, even at the hands of other people, and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and love them fully. That's what it means to be conformed in the image of the Son. So the harder God challenges us with, with people attacking us or with him attacking us, the more resilient he's making us into the image of his Son who has that perfect love and this is what Jeremiah is talking about, too, when he talks about the law of God being written into their hearts. I think sometimes we go a little far afield with our reading of that. The law of God is the heart of Jesus, the perfect love of God and the perfect love of neighbor. And in the New, and the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's being given to us and the forgiveness of sins is being given to us. And that what God is doing through suffering and, and the pains we experience in this life is he is conforming us into to, to have the law written on our hearts that is to have perfect love for God and perfect love for man even when both hate and despise us. That's an incredibly beautiful, beautiful thing. Very difficult to cling to in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trial, no doubt, but that is what we cling to. So, so I got a little far afield there. Sorry about that. 
Well, yeah, God hears our prayers, and it's, a, it's an incredible thing, and he answers. So that his eyes may be set on the temple, as it was pointed out so beautifully and wonderfully, his eyes are now set upon us. And he hears our voice. And I love this. Look at verse 30. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. I mean, what would that be? When we pray in the name of Christ? You know, not that we have to use that rote formulation all the time, but to pray in and through Christ is to pray in and through the temple. That's the, that's the equivalent of praying toward this place. Later on we see, I think, I think it's Daniel, but I'd have, to, I'd have to verify that. Daniel turns and prays towards the temple, even though he's like in Babylon or someplace like that. Yeah. And he prays for Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, that's changed for us because we, play, we pray oriented to Jesus. The woman at the well. Yeah, yeah. So, so this uh, verse 30 continues, And listen in heaven your dwelling place. Our Father who art in heaven. And when you hear, forgive. <laughs> Love it. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So, so look at this, though. Look at this. This is really rich for us to conform our minds to the mind of the capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, go, go with me back... Uh, Go back with me to, to this phrasing in, begins in 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. And then, and then, not only from the same mouth, but in the same prayer. Back to verse 30. And listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. You see, to walk with God isn't like moral perfection. Like that's not our only category. You have the category of simply living what we would call a Christian life. <laughs> clean conscience. Clean heart right spirit, oriented towards God, oriented against our sin. Okay, let me pause there and see if you have questions or comments. But will indeed God dwell on earth? Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I may not have done a good job explaining that. Um, it's such a hauntingly gorgeous and beautiful text in Genesis where the Lord is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But it's strange. It's strange. There's almost something ethereal to it. There's something incomplete about it. There's communion and fellowship, but it strikes me biblically as the way you would look at a seed compared to like a giant redwood. Okay. So there's this, there's this haunting kind of thing of like God walking with them in the garden. 
And then, and then you've kind of got Well, I, and I may, be, I may be skipping over a number of things that would bolster the case, but since we're running a little short on time, um, if you just sort of keep that in the back of your mind, and you can honestly take it or leave it, because you could maybe even more convincingly just start the theology, start, start this theology in this way of thinking of why does God want his people out of Egypt and in the desert? It's, it's ultimately so that they can build his tabernacle and he can dwell with them. So this becomes a big thing. This becomes a big thing. And then, and then what, I, what I would suggest, Liz, is um, that, that this is one of the major motifs in the scripture and in the history of God's people is the way in which God is dwelling with them or not dwelling with them, as the case may be, and the progression that happens from Old Testament tabernacle to temple to New Testament tabernacle, the incarnation, to temple, the fullest sense of which is the sacramental reality. And then where all of that climaxes in the new heavens and the new earth, where the picture is, is our Father who art in heaven is still true, but the dwelling place of God is with man on earth, and heaven and earth have wed, and God, um, will God indeed dwell on earth? Yes, in such intimate way that the dwelling place of God is with man, in such a way that it's not, it's not identical to the incarnation, but it is as close of a parallel as you can get to the incarnation of Christ in the incarnation of God in all Christians and in the heavens and the earth. Right? It's not identical to that. I'm not suggesting some sort of pantheism or something, okay? But I am suggesting that the communion is perfect. It's perfect. And we are, in, in many senses, taken up into the fullness of the Godhead itself and allowed to commune there with him. So that's, that's kind of what I mean, as, as short as I can do it. I think it's a major motif of the scriptures. If not, if you kind of follow the lead of Revelation, where Revelation is climaxing in this, in chapter 21, um, if you sort of follow that train, then you would, say, you would say that this has been the fundamental question the whole way. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, very plainly the Holy Spirit indwells us. And, uh, and that by faith and not by sight, although there are some sight elements to it because you can see the fruits of the Spirit from time to time in your life. Yeah, and that's the down payment. So the fullness of the Spirit coming into us is not yet, not yet here. It's the down payment, the Scriptures say. Yes, right, of course. So that is so God dwelling with us is yeah, yeah, yeah. being dwelling of the Holy Spirit within mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. He is dwelling and, us. and not just the Holy Spirit, truth be told, because um, Jesus teaches in John's Gospel that um, I and the Father are coming to make our home in you. So the indwelling of the Trinity, and I think the right way to think about that is, is we have a down payment of that. You know, when you make a down payment for the house, it's a chunk. It's a real. It's a real amount of money, <laughs> uh, especially here in California. Um, so it's a very real indwelling and experience we have, and to take nothing away from that, but it's a fraction of what we will have, and that's this rea- That's this reality I'm trying to paint for you biblically, and that Revelation really does. 
yeah, yeah. So, so when, when the dwelling place of God is on the new earth with us in our resurrected beings and the fullness of the Trinity indwells us in such a way that, again, it's, it's as close as you can get to the incarnation without being the incarnation. It's as close as you can get to pantheism without being pantheism. Um, there's always going to be a separation between creator and creature, okay? But, uh, and and so, so I'm good on that. But the communion and the sharing and the participation and the he and I and I and him of this relationship with God is going to be that. I mean, I'm not doing it justice even now. Uh, when, we, when we see, we'll say, you will come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, Pastor Rhoda, you got, it. You got us maybe 10% there. And I'll say, <laughs> God be praised I got that much. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but they'll say, well, I don't need that right now. I've got the end <laughs> I don't have to be there. And to me, that's like a, that's like a denial of Christ. Yeah. It is. To me, uh, Alice, I don't know, and, and maybe I'm growing soft in my old age, but uh, to me, it's, it's increasingly pitiable when, when Christians don't know what's there in the Lord's Supper, but also like barely listen to the sermon and definitely don't come to a Bible class. And the idea of cracking their Bible open throughout the week is even less likely. And, and yet, um, and, and then they, you know, like the, then their understanding of the Lord's Supper is atrophied. And I think sadly for many, many Christians, even Lutherans, it's atrophied to the point of, well, it's just me and Jesus. I need to go up there and get my forgiveness. And it even starts to turn into kind of a duty thing. A legalism creeps in. Like, hey, i got to check my box. And, oh, look at the time I'm out of here before the closing hymn. I, I mean, I get that there's sin and there's, there's some rebuke and maybe some discipline or a place for fatherly discipline in that respect in terms of the pastoral office and the congregation as a whole and the office of the keys. Um, but increasingly, I find myself just pitying Christians and trying to find some way to say, do you not know what you have? If I was handing out $100 bills up here, you'd be here every week. <laughs> do you know how much more valuable this is? Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe the play, and that's kind of what I was hinting at is, is maybe in some instances... Uh, there is, is there is good reason for rebuke, or there is good re- at least at least for uh, first step right, brotherly admonition. Right. Hey, we've noticed you've begin you've begun communing once a month. Um, or not. Yeah, yeah, or, <laughs> or not. Um, you know, could we have a conversation with you? Could we find out why this is? And then you've got room for some pastoral care. You know, before you get to discipline proper or something like that, right, where you, you've got a formal letter from the elders or something like that. So. Well, it's talking about, as far as the church goes, this, I know the devil's attacking the church, obviously. Yes. So, do people just um, count it as like an easy way to say, I'm not going? Yes. And it's the COVID. Yes, of course. COVID's getting used as a... But, but of course, I mean, pastorally, that's very difficult to fetch out. 
It's very, because there are some people who in their heart and in their conscience are utterly convinced and there are other people who are using it as a complete excuse and they're not at all. I mean, one is completely inexcusable in sin. Um, the, other is, uh, the other is genuine and not, and not sin. It may be bis- misguided, but it's not really sin. Um, how, do you f- how do you discern between the weed and the tare? You know, that's, that's analogous to the pastoral task as I find it. So I've, I've been really gentle with people and really encouraging with people, and I hope to continue. But I should, we, if you want to continue the conversation, we should. Let's, let's formally close. We're four minutes over. The Lord be with all of you.